We'll be looking at Luke chapter 12 today, verses 13 down through 21. I'll read, although we're going to recognize that this is in the context of a larger teaching about uh, following Christ and seeking God's kingdom. <clears throat> at least 16 times, Jesus is said to have warned his followers about things for which they needed to watch out. And I say at least 16 times because if you were to broaden your search to include synonymous terms, I suspect you'd find many more. Among those 16 warnings are two that receive special emphasis, two threats to the salvation life that Jesus not only warned his followers against, but gave a double warning. He not only said, watch out, he added, guard yourselves. A double warning that he only issues regarding these two perils. We're going to look at one of these today and one of them next week. That Jesus offered a double warning suggests to me that he saw these threats as especially insidious. He tells his followers to watch out, but he knows that even if we are watching, we might not see this coming. So he also encourages them to guard themselves, to take proper security measures beforehand. When you hear what the first of these threats is, you may think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. My salvation life isn't at risk from that. But we could be infected by this condition and not even know it. So imagine for a moment, a people group that lives on a remote island in the South Pacific where a disease has altered people's skin pigments and turned them orange-colored. Some are orange like an unripe peach, but some are orange like an orange. But everyone on the island has been infected. Everyone shows some sign of the disease. Now, if your skin happens to be like the unripe peach, you may come to think in time that you're not really affected like everyone else until you leave the island and see yourself next to people who don't have the disease. That's what, it likes, what it's like when it comes to this particular danger Jesus now addresses. Greed. We can see it in others. In fact, we can pick it up like that. But we have trouble seeing it in ourselves. Let's read part of our text. This is Luke 12, verse 13 and on. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus asked, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. 
I didn't read the beginning of this chapter, but Jesus had been talking to his disciples about staying true to him when persecution begins and things get tough. He was addressing his disciples, but a tremendous crowd of people was present listening to everything he was saying. And in the middle of this very serious subject, a man in the crowd interrupts Jesus and calls out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now that's in poor taste. Man, that's bad form. Just how worked up must this guy have been to interrupt Jesus during a teaching session? Do you know when it comes to something like an inheritance, people can get pretty worked up and say and do things they would never otherwise do. And that, saying and doing things one would not otherwise do, can be an indication that greed is present. This guy was furious with his brother, who I suspect was a follower of Jesus. And that's why he brings it up to Jesus. He felt that he had every right to interrupt the teacher. He'd been slighted. He'd been misused and unfairly treated. And by a guy who says he's following Jesus, perhaps he'd been counting on that money and to build a new house, to move to a new town where he could start over. He talked to his brother, and his brother wouldn't listen. So unless Jesus were to intervene, it seemed to him that all his hopes were going to come crashing down. With that weight resting on his shoulders and that anger burning in his heart, he blurted out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. One of the worst things about greed is that it distorts our thinking. This man should have known better than to interrupt the Lord as he taught. But greed had infected and distorted his thinking. And of course, when that happens, we don't know that it's happened. We think we're seeing things just as they are. But we're not. We think we're totally justified in our behavior, but we're not. That's one reason greed is so harmful. It destroys our lives, and we don't even know it. It leaves us believing that everyone else is wrong, that we're the only ones who are right. Now, if someone were to interrupt me in the middle of a sermon, I'm up here preaching away, and someone says, Pastor, tell my wife it's wrong to get a divorce. I'm, actually, I'm not sure what I'd do. Uh, I'd probably say something like, hey, we need to talk about that after the service and do my best to pick up where I left off. But Jesus saw this interruption as an opportunity to address an issue he knew would compromise his disciples' ability to stay true to him when things got tough. And so he took up the interruption and he went with it. Verse 14. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's the double emphatic warning. It's not enough just to be on the lookout for greed. One must be on guard against it. Station a sentry, go on patrol, lock up one's soul so that greed can't get in. Before we're done, we're going to take a look at how to do that, to be on our guard against greed. But notice carefully what Jesus says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Greed for money is the most obvious form of greed, 
but there are other kinds of, as well. And all of them can cause harm to the salvation life. The word that's translated greed is one of the ugly words in the New Testament. It refers to an insatiable desire, an unquenchable lust for more, more money, more pleasure, more possessions, more. But when it comes to greed, more is never enough. The person infected by greed, and this is one of its cruelest symptoms, can't remember yesterday's blessing or enjoy today's pleasure because he's being driven relentlessly by tomorrow's desire. The greedy person can't take pleasure in what he has. His ravenous appetite for the next thing won't let him. And here's what's so scary about this. To the person who's been infected by greed, that seems normal. That's just the way life is. It seems normal not to enjoy one's possessions and pleasures and relationships. It seems normal to be forever on the lookout for some new possession to acquire, some new pleasure to experience, or new relationship to form. Greed's a cancer which always attacks and destroys your contentment center first. Jesus says that a man's life does not consist, or the Greek word is, we would probably translate exist, in the abundance of his possessions. But that's exactly what a person tries to make out of life when he or she has been infected by greed. Life is all about the next thing. When greed enters you, it begins to set your priorities. It arranges your schedule. Greed says, church is important, but not as important as work, because work produces more, and more is never enough. Greed says children are important, but they're not as important as financial security. And after all, it's for their sake that I'm working myself to death, trying to get more and more. My spouse is important, but even if it strains our marriage, I must pursue this promotion. I'm doing it for her. See how greed distorts our thinking? When Paul warns the Colossian Christians against greed, he describes it as a kind of idolatry. And then to the Ephesians, he writes that a greedy person is an idolater. When greed, whether for money, pleasure, possessions, knowledge, reputation. When greed is unchecked in a person's life, he puts his hope for fulfillment, for being right, for being secure. In other words, he puts his hope for salvation in the acquisition of the object of his greed. If I only have more of this, then I'll be okay. He sacrifices himself for it. His thoughts orbit around it constantly. But only God can safely occupy that place in our lives. We're to put our hope in him, sacrifice our lives for him, set our minds on him. To do that with anything else is idolatry. To do that with anything else is disaster. I think the weakness of the church in America in the 20th century has, can be largely attributed to the problem of greed. And it's not just 
the televangelists. It's all of us. Remember that idolatry was the heinous sin that sent the nation of Israel into exile. The prophet Isaiah says of idolaters, they know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they can't see and their minds closed so that they can't understand. That's what greed does to a person. It closes his mind to God. He can't see God. He isn't moved by his glory. Have you been moved by the glory of God? That's a normal experience for a person following Christ. Have you been moved by his glory? A person who's been infected by greed isn't. He can't trust God in times of need. I suspect that the reason some people just can't see God at work in their lives is because greed has blinded their view of him. And when you hear that, don't think, well, yeah, those greedy people, the rich people, it's not just rich people who are greedy. Look at verse 16. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, dare I say it. The situation Jesus pictures here is the one most Americans spend their lives laboring to achieve. This is the American dream. Work hard, retire early, spend the rest of your life doing whatever you want. It's the American dream, but it must not be the Christ follower's dream. Where the NIV translates, he thought to himself, the original language has, he debated in himself, saying. This man was weighing the pros and cons. He was debating the advantages, considering the timing. And isn't that what we saw last week Jesus insisted people do before they decide to follow him? It's interesting to me that some people give far more time and thought counting the cost of retirement than they do counting the cost of following Jesus. There's something wrong with that picture. The man in Jesus' story wasn't wrong to think through these things before making a decision. His mistake was that he talked to himself about these things, but he didn't talk to God. But you see, that's what greed does. It blinds a person to God. It takes God out of his or her calculations. After thinking it through, maybe making a call to his financial advisor, he came to a decision. He would tear down his old barns, build bigger ones where he could store his grain, his goods. It seemed like a good plan. And when that was done, he would tell himself, you know what, it's time to take it easy. Eat and drink and have some fun for once in your life. You should do this. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? There's an old story about a man who buys a newspaper and he opens it up 
and starts looking at the stories and it just takes a moment before we realize something's really wrong here. This is really odd. And then he realizes that it's dated six months into the future. Somebody made a TV show based on that old story, in fact. So he begins to look through the paper. New York will win the series, of course. But it's the Mets. It's the other New York that's going to win the series. He could make a fortune betting on the Mets. And what about the stock market? He could, he could be wealthy, filthy rich from the stock market. And he could bet on horses. Lost in this dream of untold riches, he turns the page and he finds his name in the obituaries. A few years ago, Steve Jobs, who was the co-founder of Apple Computers, told a class of Stanford grads, remembering that I'll be dead, and you know, he has since died, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what's truly important. But the fool couldn't see that. Now, before we jump to the wrong conclusion, and I think there's a danger when you talk about this subject, that we will. Before we jump to the wrong conclusion, let's think carefully about the mistake that the man in Jesus' story made. Was it a mistake to make lots of money? It doesn't seem to be. God doesn't fault him for that. Was planning to build bigger barns, to invest in infrastructure, a mistake? Not that we know of. That seems like a pretty good plan. Was it a mistake to want to enjoy himself? I don't think so. Well, then what was the mistake? Why does God call him a fool? I think there are two things here. One, he forgot who he was. He forgot that he was not the boss. He assumed that he was independent and autonomous, free to make choices without regard to anyone else, including God. But humans are not independent. They can't manufacture their own lives, and they can't escape their own deaths. God says to the rich man, this very night your life will be demanded from you. The Greek word demand, that's translated demanded there is a compound form from the root to ask and the prefix again. God will ask for your life or soul, your deepest self. He will ask for your soul back again. God gave you this life to use for good and for glory, to use for him for a predetermined amount of time. And someday he'll ask for it back and you will not be able to to tell him no. Only a fool would forget that. All of us have been fools. The rich man forgot who he was, but more importantly, he forgot who God is. In biblical thought, a fool is not a person with low intelligence. You can have an IQ of 130 and be a fool. You can have an IQ of 80 and not be one. In biblical thought, the fool is a person who doesn't take God into account. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Look at Jesus' comment. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself. Again, that's not the problem. But is not rich toward God. 
Jesus doesn't fault the man for storing up things for himself, but for not being rich toward God, for being stingy towards him. He doesn't condemn him for making money, but for making no time for God. That's where his mistake lie. And even followers of Jesus can get caught up in this foolishness. They can order their lives around the acquisition of goods or the establishment of financial security. If there ever was an oxymoron, that's it. They can place God on the sidelines of their lives. They'll let him be there sort of as a cheerleader. But you know, if you do that, you will miss out on the salvation life God has for you. Jesus understood that fear is what often drives people to this kind of upside-down life. So he goes on to say, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Therefore, in the light of what I've just said, the light of this story, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or about your body, what you'll wear. Goes on to say, that's what the pagans do. Don't you do it. Because worry leaves the door open for greed to enter our souls. And when greed comes, it immediately begins the process of blinding us to God's presence. Now remember, Jesus told us here is to watch out for it. And to be on their guard against it. And after seeing how terrible greed is, it's idolatry. It blinds us to God. It steals from us both the memory of past blessings and the enjoyment of present ones. When we see that, we'll want to take Jesus' advice. But how do we do that? What do we watch for when we watch out for greed? How are we to guard against its entrance into our lives? Let me give you some suggestions. Watch for thanklessness. Thanklessness. If you feel no gratitude for present blessings, if your heart isn't warmed by God's and others' gifts, you are symptomatic for greed. Now, conversely, you can guard against greed by being thankful for what you have. Make much of your blessings. Count them as gifts. Really enjoy them. You know, here is the preacher telling you to enjoy things. Make much of them. Take pleasure in them with gratitude in your hearts to God. Watch out for the thought. Watch for it the way a swimmer watches for a shark. Watch out for the thought that your happiness depends on having more. It can be more of anything, by the way, not just money. I mean, if you walk away from here and say, I'm I'm not one of those people who cares about money, and you think, therefore, I'm not infected, you could be very mistaken. It can be more of money, more of admiration, more of popularity, more of possessions, more of success. That thought indicates that greed is in the vicinity. When you recognize it, immediately confess that your happiness depends on more of God not more of anything else. Don't let even one greedy thought go unchallenged. If you find yourself in some fantasy about more, more, more of something, stop it and confess that God is the source of your happiness and only him. And then watch to see if you're making comparisons to other people and what comparisons you're making. 
Someone noted long ago that most of us tend to compare ourselves to people who are financially better off than us and morally worse off than us. That way we can feel content with our character at the same time we feel discontent with our situation. Such comparisons are an indication that greed is at work. Now, one effective way to guard against greed is to be generous. It's counterintuitive. We would think that getting more and more would sate our appetite and put greed to sleep. But just the opposite happens. Feed greed and it will grow stronger and more and more demanding. In a survey that UNICEF recently conducted, of the 21 richest nations in the world, they reported that American and British teens are the most unhappy in any developed nation, despite the fact that they have the most stuff. And what's true of teens is true of all of us. Getting more does not diminish greed. It strengthens it. But giving to others, when it's done consistently, weakens greed's hold on us. So let me make a suggestion. Start a fund. Put a dollar in it every week, or five, or ten, or twenty, depending on your income, and save it to give to someone the Lord brings to mind who you see is in need. Save it maybe until you have $10 or maybe until you have $500. Until the Lord says, here's somebody I want you to give that to. And then give it. And decide in your heart what you should be giving to God each week or each month. And then give it faithfully. Giving is a spiritual discipline that is intended to free us from greed. And once in a while, when you're about to buy something that you don't really need, and you know what? It's all right to buy things that you don't really need, that you want. Don't get that idea. That's not what I'm telling you. You see something, you think, boy, I'm, I'm gonna, I would like that. I'm going to buy that. And you get out your checkbook and you start to write it. Go ahead and write out the amount. And then make it out to some ministry instead or to some person that you know who could use it. And see what God does in your heart. When in verse 31, Jesus tells people to seek God's kingdom. And that kind of wraps up this whole section. It's still in the context of living a salvation life that is unencumbered by greed. As we seek God, his rule over us, and his character in us, everything else falls into place and greed falls by the wayside. If we fail to seek God, everything else is out of place and greed will eat us alive. So don't be a fool. Don't leave God out of your calculations. Be rich toward him. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions but in his relationships, and especially in his relationship with God. Let's pray. God, give us the glorious freedom 
of those who've been liberated from greed. We don't want it. We don't want any of it in our lives. The only insatiable, insatiable hunger we want is for you. Free us, Lord, even if it's hard for us, even if it scares us to death. Tear the idol from our hearts and weak and bleeding will come to you. Take your rightful place, Lord. For our great good and for your eternal glory. Through Jesus, amen.